to the first Then Now Next. This is the podcast where we look at a subject matter through the prism of time. Today's guest is Paul B. Davis, artist, musician, academic. So what are we going to talk about today, Paul? Well, I believe we're going to talk about our various understandings of British identity through music. It's a subject that is meaningful for both of us, and we have a lot to say, so hopefully that'll happen. And if it doesn't happen, our lovely editor will sort that out. We're both music nerds, so <laughs> I think this is a subject we can talk about till the cows come home. Let's go then. We're looking at the subject of British identity. Growing up in America, what was your perception of Britishness through music? I think for many people, you know, the first music that you're exposed to is the music that your parents play in the house. My mom was into folk music. Names that stick out to me off the top of my head are Joan Baez or Richie Havens. And this is folk in the kind of pop American tradition. The Woodstock tradition. Definitely. My dad really liked blues-based American rock and especially did not like a lot of British music, especially bands like the Beatles. His record collection, well, actually, he didn't have much of a record collection. His reel-to-reel tape collection featured a lot of Janis Joplin and, you know... I mean, I think a lot of what white people in the late 1960s and early 70s listened to in the U.S. was blues-based rock made by other white people. So that's what he listened to, and a lot of it wasn't British, and he didn't really... He looked at the, you know, something like the Beatles is like, you know, I don't know, something for kids or something like that. You know what I mean? It wasn't like real rock music, even though I'm sure as the Beatles progressed and got more sophisticated, you could make very strong arguments that my dad had a limited view of their musical output. I'm just mentioning all this because this is my initial introduction to whatever British music was supposed to be. So growing up, you didn't really get or hear or expose to much British music. How and when did your perceptions form? Was that much later? Well, I mean, it was when we got cable TV and then that had MTV on it. So an MTV, not that it was like British focused or anything, but there was a lot of British music on MTV. What year was this? 85, 86, around there, I think. Depeche Mode, maybe? Yes, definitely. And actually, Depeche Mode is the only band I've seen, like stadium band I've seen twice in in my life. They're the only ones. So, you know, clearly a Depeche Mode fan here. Going on with the MTV thing, I would say, just thinking back, the first sort of like British identity sort of that I got from MTV was the host of an MTV dance show. Her name was uh, Downtown Julie Brown, and she hosted the MTV like dance music show. And I would have heard KLF. Adamski, late 80s, early 90s, British classics. To my mind, the KLF are incredibly British, incredibly esoteric, really, really kind of exemplify a lot of kind of British-centric uh, values. But what's your perception of that as an American? I definitely did not understand, you know, the eccentricity or whatever. To me, 3AM Eternal was just a big-budget music video you know, with a guy holding a, what was then like a, a cell phone, you know, dee, 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 dee. You know, it was like, it was a cool scene. And then the music was pretty jamming. I mean, I don't even know if I would have identified them immediately as British. You know what I mean? And 
I guess I'm saying that because a lot of like, well, the singing didn't necessarily have a British accent. 3 a.m. Like, I don't know. And I think the rapper guy might have even kind of put on a American-ish kind of accent, like probably most British MCs did at the time. I'm thinking back about the imagery in that video, and probably I'm guessing that the first time I saw it, I didn't even realize they were British. So was there a point where British music became a thing that you identified with and became interested in? Yeah, just this pursuit of more knowledge about dance music generally. Around this time, my older sister had gone to uni and came back with um, both tales of doing MDMA, but also um, 808 State albums. So I listened to plenty of 808 State. This would have been in 89. So clearly, you know, having 808 State CD cases and looking at where it was recorded and all their shout outs and stuff like that, then starting to get more into dance music generally. And I think at that time I had an idea that, okay, a lot of this was sort of European and that included Britain. So I was, you know, looking for sort of techno compilations and stuff and some was British and some was not. And then I would say a year or two after that, I started to find the early releases of, I guess, what people started to call IDM music. So this is... Intelligent dance music. Yes. Intelligent dad music now. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. Warp released a compilation that had some Aphex Twin and like Black Dog and just a bunch of probably an Autechre track on it. That then led me to a more focused sort of exploration of, okay, IDM stuff, it all seems to kind of come from... Britain, not all of it, I would say most of it. You know, who are these people? Where are they from? Why is it from there? I really like it, et cetera, et cetera. So that was my, that was my vehicle. You cottoned on, there was this great music scene in Britain, but what was the perception of British identity that you were forming? I mean, it was pretty simple. It was like this cool place where they played dance music on the radio and and the US was not that place. (laughs) That orbital track Chime was a top 10 hit. Prodigy's in the charts, so is KLF. Like, it's, you know, these people are touring. I drove five and a half hours to go see Orbital in Chicago, saw the show, turned around and drove five and a half hours right back to St. Louis. That was like a normal weekend for me. (laughs) My idea of British identity still was fairly limited. It was just like this cool fantasy place where dance music, electronic music was respected and accepted by a mass audience. The reason they're playing uh, this kind of music, did you think that Britain must be this liberal, culturally brilliant uh, place as a result? Well, I mean, I suppose the subtext here is that dance music in the States is music made by gay black men for gay black men. Most of it, not all of it. It was invisible. So all of a sudden there's this place in Britain where it is visible. So this is the, you know what I mean? Like, it's this imagined, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Like, the the subtext is like, well, they must not give a shit if you're black or gay or or whatever. Like, it must be this great place because this music represents all these cultural contexts that are suppressed in the States. But somehow in Britain, that's okay. And everybody likes it. What made you come to the UK? Was it interest in music, British music identity that brought you here? Well, I mean, I had an opportunity to come here and I just took it 
And, you know, I'd been making music for a while at that point. And I should probably say that, you know, my understanding of Britain as a place where dance music can thrive was definitely supported throughout the 90s. Like, I would send white label vinyls to, you know, this guy I'd heard about called John Peel, and I found his BBC address on the internet. A few weeks after that, I'd start getting random emails from people in Britain who'd heard my record played. Like, he played every record we sent him. He was the first DJ to play the ape at construction set, probably. I didn't know exactly what Radio 1 was, but I knew it was like a big radio station in London. (laughs) So my understanding of Britain as a place where the music that I was interested in and I was making myself was supported was... I had only good experiences and and that understanding was only bolstered by, you know, stuff, people like John Peel. So when a chance came to come to the UK and play music, which happened in 2003, of course I took it. I was, yeah, great. I was invited by a record label called Seed Records and they were throwing parties. They'd thrown a, one, I think already in this venue that was Aldwych Disused Tube Station in London. And they were going to do another one. It wasn't free for me. It was going to cost me a little something to come. But the event itself and the opportunity to go to London and to play with the other people on this lineup, who will come up in a second, was too much to turn down. So, you know, I did what I had to do and made the trip. So here's what happens on the trip. I get on the plane and arrive in in London the night of the show. Probably not great planning on my part, but get a black cab from Heathrow to the venue, and I'm tired, you know, kind of like jet-lagged or whatever. So I roll up in this disused tube station, the party's going on, there's like thousands of people there going mental. But I go back into the little VIP room after I figured out my schedule, I'm not on for a few hours, and I fall asleep. I'm woken up another hour or two later, tap, tap, tap on my shoulder. It's Luke Vibert tapping me on my shoulder, which is astounding to me because he's one of my kind of high school musical heroes, these British electronic music musical heroes. He knows my record. He knows the 8-bit construction set. I obviously know like all of his records, but he really likes it and he wants to talk to me about it. And someone told him I was there and he saw me on the bill, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's great. And he seems, you know, like he's a totally fascinating guy, like a music nerd, I would say. And then I end up DJing again, you know, at this party in a tube station after Luke Vibert and right before Aphex Twin, right? Two of my musical pinnacles, and I'm between them. Like a little Paul B. Davis sandwich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. And there's 3,000 people going nuts. Obviously, I have some, what I would call, extended DJ techniques that no one else was really doing this included things like plugging the output of the mixer back into itself to do feedback and using that like as a as a rhythm kind of device to cut back and forth between records and distortion and doing tricks vinyl tricks and et cetera, et cetera. and everybody was cool with it if i try to do that in a lot of american venues i would either not be allowed to or people would just look at me like what the fuck is this and Here I did it on a giant sound system in front of 3,000 people, and everybody loved it. So it was an awesome party. It made me say, like, well, this is, you know, this. why would I leave? London is amazing. It's all my fantasies building up over the past 15 years about 
what music is and the cultural context of it in London, in Britain, came true at that moment, I I think I'll stay. So <laughs> that's actually why I'm here today. <laughs> and I guess, when was this, like 2003? Yeah. Uh, you just kind of came here just when uh, one of, I guess, the most English, most London-centric things, grime started to happen or people became aware of it. I know you love grime as much as I do, but what was your first impression when you heard it? Well, two things. First is that um, lyrically, I struggled with some of the sort of accents a bit because, and this is going to sound, you know, kind of silly, but a lot of British accents, especially when MCs are using their native accent, sound kind of effeminate to an American ear who's grown up with like Atlanta and LA accents and whatever. I didn't pay attention to the lyrics so much. Now I definitely do. Another reason I didn't pay attention to the lyrics so much is because grime instrumental music sounded like alien spaceship music that I'd never heard before. And it was definitely this insane amalgamation of what I came to understand as garage, house, hip-hop, weird-ass video game sounds and like just abstract, you know, kind of scariness, sometimes with absolutely no drums. I guess I'm thinking of, you know, Wiley's Ice Rink. When I heard Ice Rink, I just, I didn't even get it. Like, I really liked it. It sounded like something I'd never heard before. And you just don't hear things you've never heard before that often. You know what I mean? Like, you put on the record and, and you just don't know what it is. So maybe to some people that's confusing. To me, that's the most interesting and engaging thing that could ever possibly happen. So as soon as I heard that, I have to figure out what is grime? Why is it here? What, you know, I'm here. That's this perfect. Let's go do it. I guess grime became my favorite music, but I'd hear sounds in a grime record that would be like, oh, right. Okay. That sounds like, you know, somebody's clearly been listening to this Detroit record or like this, and they hadn't been. <laughs> it just like somehow popped up there. You know what I mean? So you've been in the UK for a couple of uh, years then uh, by this point. So had your understanding of the perception of British identity free music started to develop or change? I suppose. I mean, I guess the thing, first of all, is once you get to meet all these people that are, you know, that were faceless and behind all this music, some of them are cool and some of them really aren't. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we won't ask you to say who isn't now. <laughs> what was a fantasy becomes like very well defined. Some of it kind of might support what you were interested in as a fantasy, what some is not in accordance with it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> were we this liberal place that you hoped? Well, in some ways, yeah, certainly, because um, all this stuff happened here. But, you know, at the same time, yes, there was a huge explosion in, in rave culture in the late 80s, but also there were laws passed that you like couldn't play repetitive beats or whatever. And, you know, I have the Autechre record that played with that notion, but it didn't even... I thought it was like a joke or something. Like, I didn't actually realize that was the British system's response to this culture. And I suppose I ended up seeing that with Grime, too. Like, here's this music. It's world-changing, and it, nothing exists like this anywhere else but here. And it's something that I wanted to celebrate as much as I possibly could. But, like, where do you go to hear it? Right. Because all the events ended up getting shut down. There was a, like a big question of what the sort of larger labels and UK pop industry had to do with it. They had no idea. You know what I mean? 
you saw grime artists in the 2006, 2007 era starting to like just make like shitty, cheesy dance tracks, which are like, you know, kind of funny, I guess. And you kind of, you know, wearing your Rolex or whatever. But compared to where the music came from, like it was embarrassing. That becomes, you start to understand, well, that's not just the artist being like, well, I want to do this. Where am I? That's structural, you know, both British society and and the British music industry not understanding where to put this kind of black British music, basically. So, you know, I would say cracks definitely appeared in what I thought of as, you know, this amazing liberal place where dance music can could flourish. But at the same time, I feel like I can't really complain too much because all the music still happened and it was a- allowed to thrive in ways that it wasn't in the States. So, Fast forward, um, what was it, 15 years from when grime came around? Grime came, grime went, uh, funky bassline, grime came back, grime's dead again, drill, whatever. I have no idea what's <laughs> happening now. But where we are now, what's your perception of British identity through music? Very confusing, I suppose. And it's part of this issue of identity through music generally as distributed through the internet. I mean, when I turn on one extra, I heard a drill track the other day by a, an artist called Pop Smoke. I couldn't tell where he was from. It ended up he was from Brooklyn, but he could have been from next door to me. Because so much music on the internet is just like flattened by the experience of everything super compressed, there's limited information, and it's hard to tell where anyone's even from. And, you know, styles pop up in one place physically, maybe, but within a week are being made by producers halfway around the world. It's hard for me to understand through music any kind of identity, if you know what I mean. I totally agree with you. I think you listen to those the Afrobeat stuff that's coming out at the moment. Where is it from? Uh, is it from London? Is it from uh, Lagos? It could be anywhere. It's um, Music's become so international, but this idea of national identity free music seems to have been lost. Well, yeah, possibly. Or it also could be, and this is just, I think, something that happens is, you know, I'm not 28 anymore, you know, I'm 40-something. <laughs> and yeah, so it could just be old. <laughs> that is the other factor. Probably the most likely one, but let's just not go there. But I mean, the way that consume music maybe is not in tune with the way that most music is produced or meant to be consumed, if that makes sense. So when I first got to London, I found the record shops that sold grime white labels, and I went there every week, chatted to people coming through. A lot of people were very interested that I was American, and I also think that helped cut through like maybe some of the pretensions or like standoffishness of like class division amongst British people. Like I'm alien to that. And it was really helpful, I think. Um, Also because I obviously knew a lot about hip hop and they were interested in that too. So if you were going to dive straight in and learn about grime, that was the best way to do it. And I totally understood it. And I also understood a lot about the politics of a record shop and vocabulary and like what you're supposed to do in there. And I felt really comfortable just meeting random people. Like it was a little home away from home kind of place. I don't know where that is now. You know what I mean? And that might be because I'm 42. Maybe if you're 25 and in London, you 
know where that place is, or maybe that little bit on the internet, or you know the vocabulary to use to be able to understand an identity through music, and I don't. So I think that could be it. Yeah, I think, you know, who am I as I'm coming 40 to make that call? In reflection, you're probably right that, um, you know, as a 40-year-old, I can't make this judgment that this stuff isn't happening, there's no identity. I'm sure there is. In fact, you know, the drill stuff's incredibly local in terms of maybe sonically, it's, you know, shares a lot with internationally, but in terms of the lyrics, in terms of what they're rapping, it's almost almost like goes back to gangs and stuff and really kind of local. So, you know what, it's probably I just not in the right space to know what's going on there. And I guess I would also say you're probably familiar with my Mr. 100 uh you know, oh, who isn't over <laughs> with the Mr. 100 stuff? I think I did create something between a unique sound and an identity, although I guess it was a personal identity. I mean, obviously, like all these various musics, but I also was thinking there's probably not anyone who has exactly the musical background that I have, and et cetera, et cetera, coming from St. Louis and growing up on like Midwest hip hop and Southern hip hop, and then finding house and techno and then moving to London and becoming really interested in soca music because my neighbor was a soca DJ and trying to produce soca and et cetera, et cetera. So I just thought, well, I'd like to make tracks that are essentially like a personal autobiography slash identity. Let's make soca tracks that sound like soca if it was produced by an American guy who grew up listening to Underground Resistance. I bet that would sound pretty good, and that's what I did. Sure, lots of other people could produce amazing soca and stuff, but as like a representation of an identity, I think it was fairly unique, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think you can't be accused of cultural appropriation. That's something very, very fresh, very, very you, and representing your experience of being exposed to all this really cool music. What do you think is going to happen next? Obviously, we're in a bit of a crossroads British culture generally and our identity is in flux. What's your prediction for that impact on pop music? Well, I guess the main thing is, you know, insofar as anyone can predict, like no one knows. But I would imagine that it probably becomes more localized in a city like London, which is only going to become more multicultural, regardless of any political outcome. That is only going to breed more shifts, I suppose, in musical identity, but it's going to be something that happens again more and more in London, or maybe Drill is a good example. Like this is certain estates in certain parts of town are where that music happens, and it doesn't really happen anywhere else. You know, you can hear it on the radio on one extra sometimes wherever you want. You can be anywhere and find a stream and hear your favorite drill artist, but it's not being produced in those places. It's only being produced in very specific locations. So I suppose maybe that's the answer of where things are going to happen or how things are going to happen. Things will become much more sort of culturally mixed up and confront traditional ideas of Britishness that we're obviously dealing with politically right now. They'll be very localized in their production and only more and more localized, I suppose. So in some respects, um, actually, there's no Britishness, free music will disappear. Music from this part of London, which will be understood as British, but obviously won't represent 
all of Britain or something. And 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 it's music that is not going to be a top ten hit, say in the same way. The Prodigy was, or something like that. Even though that music was kind of you know transgressive at the time, and enough people liked it to send it up the charts, I can't see whatever niche post drill thing ever being allowed to be in, in the British charts. But yet it's clearly a very British music, but it's made in a very niche, I don't know if niche is the right word, very specific part of London, and it has that identity. It doesn't really shout like, I'm British, if you know what I mean. Fingers crossed this podcast is hugely, hugely successful and I'm making it in five, ten years' time and we can have you back to see if these predictions are true. Thank you, Paul B. Davis, for being on Then Now Next. Um, it's a real pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. I hope I come back in five or ten years' time, although it might cost you. That's all. Like this, you know, the first one's free. That's what my uh, drug dealer said. 